Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a returning guest, a very special guest. His name is John Hamer. He comes to us from the UK. He's just published a book this month, February 2021. The title of that book is The Falsification of Science, Our Distorted Reality. And I've read some of his other books as well, and I've had interviews with him, three other audio interviews if you're interested. Uh, Back in February 2019, we talked about the Soham child murders. We also, in March of 2019, We talked to the precursor of this book, which is The Falsification of History, Our Distorted Reality, and also in May 2019, JFK, A Very British Coup. And you can find those on uh, YouTube or on my podcast. He's also authored other books, Roots Detective. He's also written about the Titanic, RMS Olympic, and Titanic's Last Secret, and Behind the Curtain, Volumes 1 and 2. Those are uh, written in 2016. So he's a very prolific author. But I've read through this book. I highly recommend it. I learned a lot. Uh, so I'm, I really appreciate him writing and also coming on the show. So, John, for people who don't know or haven't heard your name, can you talk a little bit about your background and what led sure. you to write this book? Sure. Hi, William. Thanks very much for having me on, first of all. It's much appreciated. And it's nice to catch up again after all this time. Right. Yeah, I mean, the background to the book is, is pretty simple, really. I mean, as you, as you rightly said, I wrote The Falsification of History, oh, gosh, almost 10 years ago now. Uh, that was published around 2012, 2013. Um, and it, it just seemed like a natural kind of successor to it, really. I mean, we know that we know that our reality is totally distorted, as, as per the strap line of both my books. Um, and, uh, you know, the, I just thought it made a, a really neat companion to the, to the, to the history, history book, you know, to look at the science side of things too. The two just nicely complement each other, as far as I can tell. So it, just, it, it was just that, that natural progression, really, that, uh, that led me to do it. Right. And I mean, you have so much information in this second book. What uh, I mean, you really start off kind of the description of our universe and what people lead us to believe about our universe is distorted. Can you just start off with that? Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get into lots of scientific information here. I mean, I think it's probably worth saying that, you know, for anyone who's, who's kind of concerned about that, my book's not a scientific textbook. It's a, you know, it's a generalized work, which is written to be understandable by anyone, really, with a, a reasonable level of intelligence. So, I mean, and I'm not a scientist either, apart from high school science. Um, but, yeah, I cover lots of different topics within the book, areas, you know, where we're being totally deceived. But I, I actually believe that there are, there are three tenets of modern science that hold together the whole paradigm, the whole modern paradigm of science, all of which are fake. And that is the Big Bang Theory, uh, the theory of evolution and globe Earth. And the first two, obviously, the the clue is in the name. You know, the Big Bang Theory, the theory of evolution. Uh, Both of those are just theories, but they're taught as fact. Um, But the, the key issue is that without those three principles, I do believe that the whole basis of modern science would just collapse. This is what keeps us all in our tiny little box of reality and propounds the huge falsehood that we're, we're a cosmic accident, a chance occurrence, and are just one of probably trillions of other intelligent life forms throughout the universe instead of being, as I believe, the centre of it and an extremely important component of all creation. So creating that fake paradigm, in effect, renders we as a species, as a, as the human race, and our lives almost completely worthless and irrelevant. 
So they, the powers that be, the elite, whatever we want to call them, the Illuminati, you know, lots of people have lots of different names for them. They have to perpetuate those three myths in order to maintain this kind of illusion that we are basically this huge accident and, and our lives have no purpose. Right. So, yeah. Well, let's address that first one. You say the Big Bang. What other contradictory facts are there in the universe that nullify the theory of the Big Bang? Right. Well, there's lots of scientific debunks for it. Again, I don't. I don't want to go into massive masses of science because, to be honest, without referring to my book, I, I would struggle to remember all the scientific details. Um, but um, you know, the, the, I think the thing about the Big Bang theory is that you know no one knows what really happened you know no one not even mainstream science you know despite their disingenuous claims to the contrary um i mean mean, the basic premise of the big bang for the for those um listening who don't know uh is that the universe was created when this nothingness exploded i mean that goes against the first law of thermodynamics and that is that matter cannot be created nor destroyed so, you know, this, this is typical of all the contradictions in science. All the alleged immutable laws of physics can be broken whenever it suits their narrative. So it's, it's very much a kind of a, uh, a fake narrative that they perpetuate all the time, but they don't care about breaking rules to make sure that that is perpetuated. And again, I have much more details about that in my book. Um, yeah, and you, you talk about uh, like the redshift theory and certain elements of how people describe yeah. the universe plasma so they're not bringing into the discussion these kind of infotainment physics people who i've seen on very popular broadcasts who you mentioned yeah are perpetuating this and we can talk about dawkins and these other evolutionary theorists but yeah i mean the big bang there's a lot of problems with that and it doesn't account for a lot of the elements of the of the yeah. universe, really, it doesn't describe it. Absolutely, I mean, I mean, this is this is always the, the situation. They come up with a theory that fits their narrative, and then they push it and push it and push it, you know, to the point of ridiculousness. And anyone who goes against that narrative is is destroyed professionally, or you know, they they're never allowed to work again. They're not allowed to get grants. They're not allowed to work on any research projects. And it's just it's just a, a fake. I keep using this word, but paradigm is the best way I can describe it. That that actually suits their narrative and enables them to perpetuate all the myths that they do perpetuate. And the Big Bang theory is just one of many, you know. So it's it's a uh, uh, it's a very very important mainstay in in mainstream physics, but it it has virtually no basis in reality. I think that's what I'm trying to get across. Right. So, I mean, they're not bringing into it all of this stuff. And you talk about how, I mean, through the book, how many of these people are Freemasons and how many are occultists, like Isaac Newton. So there's real problems with just theory of gravity, how it doesn't uh, express itself through the universe. Like, why are these things here? Well, yeah. So there's real problems if you really look at it. Like, I like that holographic universe, at least as a descriptive model of real what's going on. I mean, I, obviously, I can't say whether that is, is correct. I mean, I, I'm just kind of offering a counter hypothesis, if you like. But I, I agree with you, William. I mean, it does it does make more sense than the Big Bang theory, and also that there's the electric universe as well, which a lot of mainstream scientists are now cottoning onto, and and they're, and they're beginning to accept that. And even that has far more kind of credibility to it than the Big Bang, which to me, the whole thing is like a fairy tale. You know, it, it's 
it's crazy when you when you actually look into it it has no substance to it whatsoever it's it's almost like science believes in miracles now because something that you know nothing can explode and create a whole vast universe i mean the whole the whole idea is just so crazy that it, it's totally unfeasible right and then but then there's that subtext of like uh we're just tiny little creatures in this vast universe yeah i mean i yeah. think that that's really the subtext of the big bag theory exactly. is like just randomness uh, yeah because i mean that that's what enables them to up part of what enables them to keep you know the control over us that we do if they if they're telling us and we believing it that we are basically nothing in a huge huge universe you know we're just one of trillions of other civilizations which is the, again the myth that they propagate um then it, it really renders our lives worthless and 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 it makes us easier to control by doing that right. i i believe that anyway no, I believe it. I mean, because it's the same subtext that's in evolution. So, I mean, we can talk about the exactly. real yeah. problems with evolution, which is almost another fairy tale that some kind of sentient cell yeah. grew yeah. out of itself to create a, a super hyper complex human being. I mean, yeah. I think your I mean, book, you don't talk about evolution, but your book shows that human beings yeah. are hyper complex, holographs yeah, and all kinds of yeah. things. But can you talk about problems with evolution? Yeah, sure. I mean, as I say, evolution is one of the three main tenets of their false uh, reality, if you like. Um, so you've got, you know, the Big Bang Theory and evolution, which are, are really intrinsically linked. I mean, if the Big Bang really did happen, then evolution is almost a given. As it follows that the, if the universe developed in that manner, then the next logical step in that wider evolutionary process is the evolution of living species. Um, I mean, the, the assumption is always made that if you do not believe in evolution, then you must be a fundamental Christian, believing in divine creation, as that's very strongly as the only viable alternative. But of, of course, that's abject nonsense. I mean, I'm not a Christian personally, and, and I don't follow any other organised religion either. But I am a spiritual person, and I believe that it's absolutely possible that there was a creator of some kind, although. I confess to having no real idea what form that creator would take, but the difference being is that I don't feel I have the need to invent something to fill a hole in the knowledge gap. I'm quite content to say I don't know, but science doesn't seem to be. Science always has to have an answer because they have this narrative that they have to fulfil. Okay, but I think it's worth um, uh, just defining evolution slightly because I think it's necessary to make the distinction between microevolution and and macroevolution uh, microevolution is the uh are the tiny adjustments that that evolve in living creatures for example a particular species of moth i mean there are many many examples but i just picked this one out at random really a species of moth that, that develops a wing pattern that enables it to blend in with it with its background so that it's a protection against predators you know, that, that's perfectly feasible, perfectly possible, and that does happen over time because, obviously, the ones that, you know, originally developed that camouflage were the ones that survived more readily, so they would pass their genes on to the next generation and so on. So that so that makes perfect sense to me. But what doesn't make perfect sense, and which I actually believe is a complete load of nonsense, is macroevolution, which is the changing of entire species into entire new species. Uh, which is what we're told happened. You know, we, we originated from pond slime or some such nonsense, you know. I mean, the, the amount of time that's passed since the Earth was formed up until now doesn't even, it, it 
it couldn't even possibly happen. But it's not just a time factor that's the, the issue. I mean, the actual changing of spe one species into another. And, and in fact, Darwin admitted later in his life that this was absolutely impossible. Yeah, I mean, he, 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 um, he confessed, actually, that he was guilty in inflicting a hoax on people. And, and uh, that's not common knowledge, but that's what my, where my research has led me, actually. Uh, and he, and but he, was, he was part of a background family that had this idea even preceding him. So even his grandfather. Exactly. Right, so. Yeah, that's right. His grandfather was called Erasmus Darwin. And it was him that actually began that train of thought that Darwin carried on. But there was also a, a guy who existed at the same time as Darwin. He, he was a contemporary, and he kind of came up with the same theory about about the same time. And he was called Alfred uh, Alfred Russell, and uh, and he he came up with the theory of evolution almost simultaneously with Darwin. So, but the the, the thing to me, the thing that strikes me as being uh, significant with that is that I think that. It, the time was right to propound this this evolutionary myth because then they needed to start uh, kind of this, this deception going because, you know, the way that modern science was moving and it just kind of fitted in with that whole, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'll use it again, paradigm, that, that whole false paradigm that they were devising and evolution was, was perfectly complementary to that at that particular time. So it's not really surprising, in my view, that two people came up with it at the same time because it was kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you like. Right. And they never really talk about, like, the origin of species and the subtitle, which is the, the triumph of the most favored races or whatever. Like, That's Dawkins right. always leaves that out. So it's clearly, yeah. like, supposed to be scientific applied to human beings. So its intent yeah. is, yeah. like, who are the favored races? So it's almost like creating a caste yes. ideology, maybe. But also the fact that all these other scientists, even like very well-known evolutionary biologists cannot admit, or they do admit that there's no evidence of the change of kinds or the change right. of species. So they don't have That's any evidence right. of that. Looking back, even looking through the, uh, you know, paleontological record, they can't find this change. And they actually have things where they're running. They can take these fruit flies and yeah. just keep breeding them. Yeah. And they just always create fruit flies. There's no... Yeah, wasp pops out or uh, yeah. really significant variants. So they, they have some real problems that they never really like to divulge to the public. So okay. you're right. It's a pseudo religion, just like you wrote in your book. Yeah. And it's interesting. Sorry. Sorry, William. Come on. No, good. I was just going to yeah. say it's interesting point that Darwin was really a preacher. He wasn't even That's in right. that. He's almost like a Kinsey figure who had no idea about sex. But he yes. was a uh, Kinsey was like a zoologist. He became yeah. a sexologist, but Darwin's almost the same thing. Like he jumped his specialty. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I and just of course, I mean, that's totally prevalent right throughout science, isn't it? They, they kind of hire these non-professional people. I mean, I, I, I believe in the States, you've got this guy called Bill Nye. And, right. Uh, Bill Nye, science guy. And yeah. And there's another guy as well. whose name. I, I forgot. Uh, the African-American guy. I can't remember. That's, his name. That's, yeah. I can't remember his name. Yeah. Yeah. No. But I think, if, you, if I may, I'll read out a quote, which Please is do. the end of my evolution chapter. Please do. Because I think this just sums up the whole thing. Just neatly. Okay. And, it's, and it's from a guy called Sam, who would not disclose his surname for obvious reasons. As I, as I read this, it will become apparent why he wouldn't disclose his surname. He's actually a molecular biologist. Okay. He says, 
To be a molecular biologist requires one to hold on to two contradictory insanities at all times. One, it would be insane to believe in evolution when you can see the truth for yourself. Two, it would be insane to admit you don't believe in evolution. All government work, research grants, papers, big college, le- college lectures, everything would stop. I'd be out of a job or relegated to the outer fringes where I couldn't earn a decent living. The work I do in genetic research is honourable, but in the meantime, we have to live with the elephant in the living room, intelligent design. Intelligent design is that elephant in the living room. It moves around, takes up an enormous amount of space, loudly trumpets, bumps into us, knocks things over, eats a ton of hay and smells like an elephant, and yet we have to swear it isn't there. And I just think that is that you know that just says everything you need to know about the theory of evolution to me. I totally agree, but it's also that same thing that's similar with the Big Bang is that they want to promote this secular humanist kind of view. Yeah. Like, and and if you don't believe them, you're an ignorant evangelical Christian. It's always the go-to. It's not like you're in some third place where you just accept you don't know. But you're yeah. either you're kind of like a shallow lunatic for questioning yeah, exactly. it. Exactly. No, no, that's exactly right, William. And and and, th- and this is prevalent right throughout the you know the scientific world. If you don't follow their their set religious outlook on certain aspects, certain topics, then you know you can't. You're not allowed to do your job as a, as a scientist. You've got to follow them. That's why they all follow the same religious creed, the same dogma that that's churned out at us twenty four seven. And, uh, you know, much of mainstream science, as, as you would probably realize from reading my book, is, is just basically, uh, you know, nonsense. It's not true. It's, it's, a, it's a fantasy world. It's a creation. Yeah. yeah. No, it's really true. Like, Kinsey himself was supported by the Rockefellers and Darwin. We got support from the Royal Society. Were you yeah. ever able to determine whether he was a Freemason? Oh, sorry, who? Who? Uh, uh, Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin, no, I, I wasn't actually. I, I mean, I strongly suspect that he was, but and I, I've never come across any information that says that he definitely was. But I know that is is um, it, there was a, a guy called Thomas Henry Huxley, who was the grandfather of Aldous Huxley, who wrote Brave New World, which is a famous dystopian novel that was written in the 1930s, which some of listeners may have heard of. Uh, it's kind of always in, used in the same bracket as 1984 to depict totalitarian society that we're headed for unless things change. But Thomas Henry Huxley was known as Darwin's bulldog. He heavily promoted Darwin and his ideas and, and, he, and, he, and he pushed the ideas of evolution forward very strongly using, using Darwin as like a front guy if you like. So he was a Freemason. So it, to me it, it kind of speaks volumes that you know, I, I think Darwin either must have been or, or he was very, very heavily influenced by them. Because I've seen pictures of Darwin, and I don't know if they're Photoshopped, but he's making that sign of silence where he puts the finger across his face. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a Photoshop. That's I, know a Trump, okay. I think that's a Photoshop, but okay. uh, I, I might be wrong if anyone out there can put me right on that. But yeah, I don't know. I do but think that's a Photoshop. Yeah, that would be kind of a give, something of a giveaway. But, yeah, these it guys, was. like Huxley's dad, I mean – yeah, it's an incredible arc from the bulldog to Aldous to Aldous Aldous's brother, who's the head of UNESCO. I mean, exactly. he's yeah, very influential. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and you quote like one of my favorite authors too, Dave McGowan. Throughout the book, you talk about evolution and stuff like that. Yeah. And so I think that that's uh, 
Yeah, Dave was great, wasn't yeah, he? Really God rest his soul. Yeah. yeah, God rest his soul. Let's see, I miss him. I wish he was still around. It was yeah, I know. It was, it, was, it was incredible. I was very Terrible fortunate life. to have a, one conversation with him and, uh, you know, a few years before he passed. And, uh, yeah, it was a great guy. A great guy. Yeah, I went to his book reading uh, in uh, Hollywood when he, the Weird Scenes book came out. So I was fortunate enough to get a personally signed copy of Weird Scenes. Oh, wow. Good. And met him and talked to him a little bit. So, but, uh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I saw him smoking those those cigarettes. So I mean, oh uh, right, did I didn't realize. Yeah. Oh yeah, man. He was he looked like a chain smoker to me. Okay. Right. Anyway, uh, one of the greats. I mean, that's like a whole other story. Is the moon landing, which, uh, yeah. which really I for me was almost impossible to believe that it's faked. <laughs> but after I yeah. read Dave McGowan and your book and stuff, it's like, yeah, this is not real at all. Yeah, I mean, I used Dave as a, as a big influence on that on that chapter. I mean, obviously, it's, you know, there's other stuff in there as well. But yeah, Dave was a big influence on my thinking on that. Absolutely. I mean, he, he was a real pioneer of the anti moon landing brigade, and uh, yeah, I kind of that, that it was it was that that kind of hooked me into that aspect of it. Uh, I did actually write a little bit about the fake moon landings and falsification of history as well. So there's kind of an overlap there. Um, I mean, there are t- one or two areas where the books do overlap a little bit, but because history was kind of, falsification of history was kind of uh, eight nine years ago, that you know I've, I've used this as an opportunity to update the pieces of information in there as well. So because obviously there is a crossover between science and history. I mean, it has okay. to be. Yeah, okay. I mean, there's so many problems with the moon landing and, and the, the situation around it. It's clearly something you know something's behind NASA pulling the strings. But uh, one of the int- yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things about your book, which is also challenging, is the idea of dinosaurs. And I mean, uh, do you want to yeah. talk about your your position on that? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, dinosaurs are just a kind of a a convenient adjunct to evolution. It's just another proof that um, you know, and I say proof in quote marks there uh, of evolution, because interestingly enough, no one had ever discovered a dinosaur fossil until just about the time that evolution was being formulated. So kind of in the mid-19th century, the 1850s, uh, the first dinosaur fossils were found. There's no record of them anywhere in any ancient texts. There's no record of them, you know, in, in kind of more modern history up to the 19th century. There's nothing, you know, there's no kind of... Uh, shall we say, you know, the, the, the spoken histories of certain, you know, native peoples like the Native Americans, there's, there's nothing, you know, so there's no, no, nothing in the record at all that's been passed down about dinosaurs. So in my view, it's just a kind of a, it, it, what they're trying to do, I believe, is trying to create some kind of a missing link situation because famously the missing link is, is, has always been the big downer for evolutionists because there isn't one. But they're constantly harping on about trying to find the missing link. Right? Well, How many fake missing links have they had? Like, oh, them, man, just on and on and on. Yeah, yeah, Tons yeah. Of missing links. Yeah, I mean, now they're trying to tell. I mean, as of as of reasonably recently, they're trying to tell us that birds evolved from dinosaurs. So they're kind of setting that up as a, as a missing link as well. But in my view, you know, I think, I guess, you know, most people who are listening now have come around to the idea that what I believe that dinosaurs never existed in the first place. They're just a psyop, you know, and there's so much information to back that up, so many facts to back that up. You know, um, dinosaur bones, any dinosaur bones in any 
on display in any natural history museum throughout the world that none of them are real and they're so and you know even the paleontologists admit that what they do say is that the the real bones are so rare and valuable that they're locked away in places like the smithsonian and the natural history museum in london you know that's very convenient isn't it um they're never on display and only certain privileged paleontologists are allowed access to them i mean and that's not me saying that this is this is the the industry itself telling us that so you know the the bones that you see on display they're all fake they're all plaster or whatever they make them out of in fact there's actually a factory in china that specializes in making dinosaur skeletons for museums around the world so i mean what does that tell us yeah the zigong dino ocean art company in zishuan do you remember that because i couldn't i wrote it down i wrote it down because (laughs) i was really fascinated by that because there's a lot of problems with dinosaurs too and you talk about like structurally they wouldn't hold up under the their own weight like a brontosaurus yeah Yeah, brontosaurus and the tyrannosaurus rex particularly it's not it's not um it's not uh aerodynamically shaped it's not it, it doesn't that's probably the wrong word, aerodynamic, but I think you get what I mean. It's not uh, the shape of it, the the posture of it, the structure of it. It, it would fall over. You know, it's not really um, viable as, a, as 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 that in that kind of a shape. Um, so yeah, there are there are a few others as well that are, that fit into that category. They're just they're just products of someone's imagination. That's yeah. all they are. And I yeah. think you also wrote, like, if they got wiped out 65 million years ago, why didn't these other species get wiped out? Like, there's yeah, exactly, real problems. Yeah. Like, why isn't the Earth just yeah. emptied 65 yeah, I mean, million years ago? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you could understand it if a few had survived, and that would be fair enough. But according to mainstream science, every single dinosaur on the planet was wiped out in a single extinction event. Well, to me, that's just not plausible. If it wiped out dinosaurs, then it would have wiped out other species of lizards as well, wouldn't it? You know, but no, yeah, there goes evolution, yeah. right? Our evolution supposedly would have been just set back, yeah, right? Supposedly. Exactly. So there's another problem with that myth. Exactly. And and I think that you know the the idea of it, um, this this meteorite, this large meteorite that landed was it and created the Yucatan Peninsula just on the east coast of Mexico. There, it was that big. Was it the Gulf of Mexico? The whole thing that was supposed to be where the meteor landed. I think so. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just it's just a nice little fantasy to to, uh, to keep people uh, <laughs> in their in their little worlds, you know. So I, I don't believe a word of it personally. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's hard it's hard to put together that no human being in human recorded history ever mentions a dinosaur until the 19th century. That's very hard. Like nobody had any weird yeah. bones. They had weird human bones and things that they kept, but you don't find it in any museum. Like oh. Yeah. You know, the Alexandrian Museum also has this this piece of item that just never really pops up. Where else yeah. would you like to go? What else would you like to talk about? I mean, there's a lot of tons of information in this book. Yeah. Well, you're the host. You go you go ahead, ask me. Well, let's talk about like what we think past civilizations really had, because we have this presumption that they're kind of like uh non sophisticated things, but there's yeah. all kinds of evidence in the in the record that these the yeah. Greeks, particularly, and a lot of these uh, cultures had very advanced mechanisms to determine Absolutely. space Absolutely. and time. I mean, we're, t- we're told that ancient civilizations that they were, you know, quite primitive people, and that you know that's the impression, impression that, that, that's given to us that, that 
ancient civilizations yeah they they did some yeah they did some pretty good engineering stuff but really they weren't quite on at our level you know i mean we've developed far better than them but there's a lot of evidence to say that a lot of inventions happened you know thousands of years ago that we've never been able to recreate and and i think you know some people are aware for example of you know the stonework the ancient stonework some of it we have no idea how they actually did what they did for example such as the pyramids of giza in egypt um no one has a clue how on earth they put those stones into place because some of them weigh many, many thousands of pounds each. I mean, it's just, you know, incredible. And with the technology that they allegedly had available in those days, it would just be impossible. I mean, we get these kind of faux documentary programs about it, which I've seen myself, where they try to put forward a theory of how they did it. But to me, they're just, they're just patching holes in a in an insubstantial theory by doing that. And the sophistication uh, too, also the astronomical sophistication is also yeah, incredible exactly. when you're down to like half a degree of true north, right? Something like that. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, how did they know this? They must have had some knowledge that has been lost to them, or to lost to us. Um, you know, and and so you know, quite a few, you know, really intricate pieces of mechanism have been found that are that are thousands of years old. There's something called the Antikythera mechanism, which again some people may have heard of, which was found um I think it was in the uh, Aegean Sea as part of a shipwreck. And it's an incredibly um, sophisticated mechanical device with with levers and cogs and, and wheels. And it's actually regarded as being the world's first, first analog computer, even though it's several thousand years old. It's been dated to be several thousand years old um, or at least 2,000 years old anyway. Uh, I mean, x-rays of the device have revealed that it's composed of at least 30 different types of gears and uh, about 2,000 letters inscribed on such a tiny piece of kit, uh, which are thought to be an ancient version of a, of a kind of user manual for it. Um, it's just a fascinating piece of piece of equipment. Incredible. Yeah, it just shows how sophisticated the Greeks were, really. I mean, their yeah. civilization, I mean, beyond yeah. philosophy and all the letters, but their science was very advanced. And they yeah. had, I mean, just all kinds of stuff. But what else is there? The bag, I mean, it shows the Vikings, too, also were able to operate without, with very sophisticated seafaring technology, right? Yeah, now, that, that's very interesting, actually. The Viking compass. Um, yeah, it was... Uh... You know, I mean, obviously, they had a really bad reputation as ruthless robbers, rapists, and murderers. <laughs> you know, they invaded yeah. Britain and all parts of Europe, and even, well, I think they even came over to um, America, didn't they? I think you know, so. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, it's always Christopher Columbus credited with discovering America, even though he never actually set foot in America. He only ever set foot in the West Indies, but that's another story, anyway. But yeah, they they they. Um, they uh, Vikings devised an incredible compass, and that's how they were able to navigate around the known world at that time. Um, you know, it was it was uh, it was uh, uh, it was it was made of a wooden disc with a with kind of a a, a very um, like a pair of crystals inside it. And I can't remember exactly how they how they used it, but it, it was a very it, it was quite a uh, and a, quite an accurate 
compass in effect although it didn't use any it didn't use magnetism it was it was kind of the way that the that these, these crystals reflected the sun even when even when it's cloudy it would still work so it was it was very sophisticated and they were able to like tra- traverse the Atlantic Ocean in a straight shot to Greenland and back. So exactly. they knew where they were going. Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. That was probably why they were so successful at raiding almost all these yeah. settlements: England, France, Spain, all over the place for those. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, that you know, that uh, incredible you know invention and workmanship went into the that uh, that piece of equipment. Amazing. And I mean, there's other kind of mysterious things. The Baghdad battery. There's the yeah. differences. I mean, the Lycurgus cup is incredible. Just the sophistication in that alone. Yeah, the Lycurgus Lycurgus cup. I think Lycurgus it's pronounced. Cup, right. It's okay. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of made of jade green, um, but when it's when it's lit from behind, it appears red, and nobody, not even scientists who've examined the thing, can actually understand how it glows red. How a piece of jade. Uh, will glow red when it's lit from behind that they, they cannot work it out at all so you know it, I mean, nobody really knows what the purpose of, of it was either so uh but yeah the incredible i think you said that they had to pound out like uh certain elements to almost like a a fine super fine grain to get that to get that yes. effect yeah so yes I mean, it, it just shows it, that sophistication yeah. yeah i mean the 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 uh these silver and gold particles that were ground down to as small as 50 nanometers in, di- in diameter, which is incredibly tiny. And to say that this was kind of made by the ancient Greeks, it's, uh, you know, sorry, the ancient Romans, uh, it's just incredible. You know, that they obviously had access to technology that we don't have today. Yeah, and there's some, I mean, there's some swords out there too that people don't even know how they were smelted and made. Exactly. Super complex. Exactly. So clearly, these civilizations obtain information, and then it's either get conquered or dissolved, and it's lost. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But of course, mainstream science doesn't doesn't admit that these people were far, you know, far more sophisticated than they, you know, lead us to believe. I mean, they just kind of, you know, dismiss them as as uh, primitives. Um, but again, because it doesn't fit their narrative, because you know, their their narrative is that you know. The, the, the ascent of man, if you like, the, the 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 evolutionary development of man and his brain, you know. So again, to admit that these these people had skills that we can't recreate, it just doesn't fit their narrative at all. True, very true, very well said. Which leads us to like your next chapter, which is Freemasonry and the Royal Society. I mean, how influential really is Freemasonry? I mean, if you look, I think every British Prime Minister has been a Freemason. There's yeah. tons of Freemasonry in the States. I mean, a huge, like, yeah. uh, the, the House of the Temple or whatever in D.C. is incredible. You can tell. Yes. I mean, it's really just in a very ornate temple, and people have been inside that. So Masonry is yeah. clearly functioning here. Um, yeah. Can you talk about the origins of Freemasonry and its influence? Yeah. I mean, Freemasonry probably had its original roots in the medieval crafts. Um, which were like a, a prim- an early form of trade unions, for want of a better word, where each trade had its own guild um, to protect the interests of its members. Uh, and in return for this this protection, the craftsmen had to submit to the most rigorous, re- rigorous regulation. You had to serve as an apprentice two to ten years, depending on the trade, 
often lived with and obey his master craftsman who tutored him. And then finally, once that long induction process was, was over, the apprentice was free to start out alone. And, uh, you know, that went on for generation after generation after generation. And the the, the guilds, the were were like a kind of a, as I say a trade union, but they were protection of that trade. So, and and masonry was a very very prominent trade, obviously in the in medieval times. You know, stonemasons were uh, you know very very widely used. Not you know not so much today these days. You know, it's a dead art almost stonemasonry. But what happened was Freemasonry kind of hijacked the Masonic Guild. Which was again, it was just a craft guild, and that's what. And then it added the word "free" at the beginning of it because they did because at that point in time you didn't need to be a stonemason to become a Freemason. So they added the word "free" to uh, to kind of distinguish it from that that guild. So it developed from that, but it very quickly spread throughout Europe, uh, probably beginning in the very early 18th century or the very late 17th century. And uh, it, it kind of gained this reputation amongst the upper classes, the elite, for being a kind of a gentleman's club where they used to meet and, um, you know, plot and plan and conspire against us minions, you know. And uh, and that's how it kind of started. And eventually it was kind of the thing for, for anyone who was anyone to become a Freemason. And it just kind of developed from that. And, and, and eventually they took over the entire... Uh, scientific establishment, if if you like, through something called the Royal Society, which again was formed in the uh, uh, the eighteenth century, and uh, and even today the Royal Society, based in the UK, is probably the you know the the the, the, the chief arbiter of of anything scientific. Uh, you know, it, it has to be kind of approved by the Royal Society. It has to be founded by the Royal Society. All members of the Royal Society are really privileged, elite people in the world of science. And whatever the Royal Society says goes. So they basically make up all the rules as they go along. And yeah, as far as I'm aware, uh, if it's not 100%, it's very close to 100% of Royal Society members are Freemasons. Uh, wow. Yeah. So it's these people that exert this undue influence over what we learn in our science lessons and what and what scientists out there in the field are allowed to uh, propound to to us and tell us, you know, what what makes things work scientifically, uh, you know. So it's all controlled. In, in other words, William, you know, it's it's right. not, uh, yeah. And it kind of leads into your other chapter about suppressed technology because if these people are controlling the arena by which or the sandbox people are are doing science and then. Yeah. All this other technology is neither found or ignored, and I mean, yeah, of course, you know, suppressed technology is, is a huge part. I mean, a lot of people are not aware of this, uh, but there are there are lots and lots of different technologies out there that are just not available to us because um, either it could spoil somebody's gravy train in terms of profits, etc. For example, one of the one of the, the main examples I give in that chapter is the water powered car. Not, not a lot of people know that there is actually a patent out there on the internet for a car powered by water. Yeah, they don't want us to know that because that would destroy the oil industry overnight. Uh, you know, it, it's a simple thing. Yeah. That so, guy so who started it, that guy who started that car got killed yeah. or died. 
Yeah. And then they destroyed his prototype. I mean, and yeah. the, the oil industry here in the States, I don't know if you know, but when they put out the first electric car yeah. that was out here, they actively bought those cars back and destroyed them before right. yes. um, uh, Tesla or Elon Musk. But sure. there's actually a really good documentary about that. It's a great mystery, but the, the oil okay. industry was just terrified. And the guys who said most of those board members on the American auto industry, a lot of some of those board members are from uh, the gas industry or the oil industry. So they have this interchanging directorate so that the oil industry makes sure that these companies are still operating on gas powered engines. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, it, it's all corrupt. As we know, the world is a corrupt place. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was very interesting what happened to the guy who uh, who, uh, who invented the water power car and, and patented it in the 1990s. It was an American guy called Stan Mayers. And Stan devised this incredible car that would do 100 miles to the gallon of water and 100 miles per hour. So it was, it was a perfectly viable alternative to... Uh, internal combustion engines and of course uh, someone actually contacted him and said they would like to take the car to, to the market so obviously he was thrilled and he arranged with his brother who was his partner he arranged to meet these people in a restaurant and um, they were halfway through the meal and then all of a sudden Stan touched his throat um, and he ran out in the street he was in agony and he collapsed and died on the sidewalk there and uh, and his brother came out to him and was trying to revive him, comfort him. And these two guys just walked straight past them, stepped over Stan without a word, without looking back, and just carried on walking. And uh, poor Stan died there and then. So that was the end of that. So nobody else has had the guts to actually revive that patent again. And I'm not really surprised. I don't think I would either. It would destroy the global economy. I mean, it would just be incredible. There's so many people. Would be yeah. If you look at the foundation of the oil company, at least in the States, too, there was all kinds of murder, shenanigans, bombings. Yeah. The competitors got yeah. destroyed. Yeah. It was just terrible. I know. So, yeah. I mean, so, but that's really, I mean, I've been in the business world. You would be surprised. It's Darwinian. I mean, these are people yeah. who have a survival of the fittest Darwinian mentality, just about oh. as ruthless as you can yeah. imagine. Yeah, well, I mean, that permeates the whole of society, doesn't it, when you think about it? I think it. so, yeah. yeah. Exactly, I mean, that's really the truth. It's, it's, it's kind of a truism that, that um, sociopaths, psychopaths, whatever you want to call them, they're kind of filtered to the top, don't they? Because they they naturally gravitate towards the top because of their attitudes and because of the way that they they think and the way that they behave. It kind of pushes them to the tops of the pyramids, doesn't it? Yeah, so it, it does. Yeah. They've had that study, you probably read it, where like, the CEOs, like 5% or 10% of the CEOs in the U.S. are diagnosed yeah. psycho or sociopaths. They just don't yeah. care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and um, I know kind of digressing slightly, but, you know, psycho- psychometric testing is was originally designed to seek out psychopaths, not to get rid of them, but to actually recruit them because they were the best fit for ruthless corporations. Yeah, I believe it. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. Yeah, no, I totally believe that. I think that I've heard those stories where, like, if they want to get an assassin in the U.S. military, they give these tests, and you're never really wrong. They always say, oh, great job, you did a great job. But the ones who really key into it, like uh, Parallax View, the movie, if you ever see that, the ones they really find who were sociopaths, it's like, we got a special job for you, John. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. um, 
anyway, like, uh, I mean, I thought also your, your chapter on NASA was really fascinating too. We kind of referred to that earlier in the, the uh, yeah. talk, but there's just so many problems with NASA and at least yeah. in the States. And yeah, do you want to talk I, a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, you know, in the, in the NASA chapter, I kind of go right back to the beginning and how it, how it sort of came about in the first place. Uh, I mean, it, it's really fascinating. It, uh, a guy called Jack Parsons was involved, and Jack and Jack and, and Werner von Braun as well, the the ex-Nazi guy that was part of Project Paperclip that they brought the American government brought over after the war. Uh, so Jack Parsons, who, who was a he was actually a genius, actually was a young rocket science scientist. Uh, but the all these people were occultists; they were all members of the occult and friends with a guy called Alistair Crowley who was uh, you know famous satanist back in the early 20th century uh, and they were they were all kind of uh, pals together and do, so nasa has got very occultic beginnings um and and that has just basically continued right through uh, it's yeah yeah and and another guy that was involved which again may be a surprise to some people is l ron hubbard who was the founder of scientology he was involved in the beginnings of NASA too, and again, you know, that were occultic background. Um, but I, I really believe that NASA is just there as a psyop. Basically, I, I, all it does is is siphon money from the American taxpayer to make fake projects to create the impression that uh, we live in a you know, in this globe earth universe, which I don't believe is the truth. Um, I've only recently come to that, that view actually, you know, through through my research, but yeah, I I think it's all designed to kind of create the impression that outer, outer space exists in the format we're led to believe that the universe is vast and ever expanding. I know so you get all these things like the space station, the moon landings, the Hubble telescope, you know, the latest thing is these these Mars rovers that have just landed on Mars allegedly in the last few days. Um, you know, I, I just think it's all theatre, William. To be honest, I really do. Um, it's all all the all the photography is fake. There's so many examples of fakery. NASA is constantly caught out lying and bending the truth, contradicting itself. You know, it's so. It's Even though the astronauts too do the same thing, they admit yeah. things. They're not yeah. really. I mean, Armstrong is not in the public eye. Doesn't do, you know, parades yeah. or anything yeah. showing. It. He feels like he's a drunk who just yeah. stays out of the public eye, which would yeah. be the opposite if not the first person on the moon. Exactly. He would just be on TV all the time. Hey, I'm, I'm the one. Absolutely. It's and kind it, of, it's counterintuitive, yeah. Sure. And if any of the listeners have never, ever seen the press conference, which is available on the internet of the uh, the Apollo 11 land, the astronauts after they landed, after allegedly returning from the moon, I would recommend that you do so because it is very, very eye-opening. Just the demeanor of the astronauts is just incredible. The three guys who had allegedly been on the greatest adventure that mankind had ever known and come back safe and sound and alive. You'd think they'd be slightly euphoric, wouldn't you? Yeah. Absolutely yeah. the opposite. They're, I've never seen a more morose, disinterested, sullen bunch of people being interviewed. It was almost as though they never even went to the moon, William, you know? Right. right. There's a good movie like Capricorn One about yes. how the people get involved and get out yeah. and like why yeah. they had to fake it. And it kind yeah. of, I think, is kind of a true 
fictional truth uh, mix of what happened yeah. in the original. Yeah, movie. so absolutely. Cool. I mean, the, the the people that rule over us with an iron fist, you know, the, the so-called elite have this principle that they work by, which is called revelation of the method. And this this means that what they do is they tell us what they're doing, but they do it very subtly. But nevertheless, no matter how subtle it is, they believe that by doing that, that exonerates them of all the lies that they tell us, of all the the the, the, the bad things that they do to us. That the revelation of the method, and this is why you see things in uh, you know in, in various TV shows, various Hollywood movies allude to certain things that they're telling us what they're doing they're very subtly telling us what they're doing through this thing called the revelation of the method and i'm not making this up i mean this no is you're not stuff, you know you're not i know uh yeah. for 9 11 there's tons of revelation of the method there's tons of movies that yeah. hinted at the event or exactly cut off so they put them in movies yeah. as like an inside joke because people knew it was going to happen yeah exactly so, i mean so, go watch the end of like fight club i mean they're telling you right there i'm not saying that actually yeah, yeah go watch it their buildings blow up they're holding hands. I mean, it's basically in the background is uh, the Twin Towers of Los Angeles. It's at uh, oh. Avenue of the Stars here. So they're yeah. basically showing you what's going to happen. And that movie came out in 1999. 99 was very uh, salient. There was a lot of films out there that happened in 1999. Yeah. They're telling you. Eyes Wide Shut was another one, wasn't it? Yes, I mean, that was... Yeah, sure it was. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. You bring that up in your book. I mean, and here you talk about the revelation. Here's your quote from Dave McGowan from chapter six. It is not the lie itself that scares people. It's what the lie says about the world around us and how it really functions. Quote, it is the realization that comes with that revelation. If they could lie about that, they could lie about anything, unquote. Yeah, and that's the scary thing to most people, isn't it? You know, I mean, scary, yeah. I've yeah. had those moments where you just go through and like, your whole worldview shifts, man. I mean, Absolutely. I was yeah, in DC yeah, yeah. for three years, and that was like, oh, man, everything I learned was just nonsense, man. I know, yeah. And that, this is why it's so difficult for people. Well, it's called cognitive dissonance, isn't it? Right, we know, yeah. you know, trying to believe two contradictory things at the same time, your mind goes crazy with it. And uh, you also, you can't, you're disincentivized, like this book shows, from really telling what you really think for financial reasons, for social Yes. A program, you know, a lot. Most people will not rock the boat. You can see those sociological experiments they've done on people, and they'll yes. just go along. So, if like the line, everybody else says the line is not higher. I think that's yeah. one of. Is it the Milgram experiment? I can't. You that was the Milgram. Uh, I know the Milgram one was the one with the um, the, the pain, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, but still, that's I mean, so those are all exemplars about human human condition. About if they, and I think that these guys, the Freemasons and stuff, they know. You yeah. just have to get a certain amount of the public to believe one thing, and everybody exactly. else will follow. Them. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, you know, you must, you have to take our hats off to them. They are master psychologists. They really do understand the human psyche in a very, very big way, and they use it to their advantage. Of course, you know, that's that's how they can get away with what's going on right now throughout the world because most people are conditioned to believe what the media tells them. You know, Absolutely. we are conditioned from cradle to grave to believe that the media wouldn't lie to us and that, you know, the people who rule us, you know, okay, they may be a bit, they may do one or two things that are a bit naughty, a bit dodgy, but, um, you know, overall, the good people are looking after our interests, you know, and that's what most people believe. And, yeah. and, and that gives them the absolute license to do whatever they want. And it's just incredible. They've gotten away with a lot. I think your book shows us there's other information in this book about the environment, about Rockefeller medical paradigm, 
unexplained human mind. We talked about suppressed technology. You also go into the global reset, a very timely topic and subject, which, yeah, uh, you know, people, if they get this book, which I highly recommend they do, uh, they can learn about all that stuff. Uh, for me, it was, we're at 50 minutes. Uh, John, do you have anything to, you want to finish up with? Anything to add? Anything I missed? Um, yeah, I mean, we've not touched on nuclear weapons, which I, I found very interesting when I when I came across this this particular aspect of of the, the great lie that's inflicted upon us. Um, you know, the fact that nuclear weapons are an absolute total hoax, which may come as a little bit of a surprise to some people, but maybe not to everyone. But yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the, when you think about it, it's 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 obvious, really, because. What happened was at the end of World War Two. Most people know this, but Hiroshima and Nagasaki are, are the two, only two times that allegedly nuclear weapons have been used for real. Okay, um, and and the reason that they did that, the reason that they had to actually do that or pretend that they did that, was because they wanted to create the Cold War. That they live by creating fear all the time. You know, all through the ages, we've had World War One, we've had World the Great Depression, we've had World War Two, and then we've had the Cold War, which lasted until the early 1990s, and then then we had terrorism. Now we're we've got pandemics. Yeah. It, we just go, for, we just roll from one fear factor to another. But the, the nuclear weapons thing was designed to facilitate the Cold War. And the Cold War wouldn't have worked without nuclear weapons. How would they? How would they have pulled the wool over our eyes for all those years without nuclear weapons? Well, I, I, I give a lot of evidence in my book, and I won't go into detail now because I know we're kind of running out of time. But um, there's a lot of evidence to say that Hiroshima and Nagasaki were fakes. A lot of quotes to say that that they were fakes, and that it was just all to facilitate this Cold War myth. And to keep us all quaking in our boots for, you know, I know, I know from my own experiences when I was a child in the 1960s uh, at school, we used to have nuclear drills where we had to hide under our desks when the when the uh, when the siren went. You know, it was terrifying for young kids. It was it's kind of a psyop. It was kind of a, you know, trauma based mind control, if you like, that was inflicted on children and and adults, of course. But yeah, it was all about fear. It's not real. And all the photographs you see are the mushroom clouds. I believe that they're all fake. Yeah. And, and, and I analyzed some of those photos in there, along with my editor, uh, Shannon, who's actually based in California. Uh, but Shannon edited the book, and she's she's a really, uh, really photographic expert. And she's looked at not just the moon landing photographs, which are the main preoccupation, but also the nuclear uh, mushroom pictures, and you know, we've, we've, together we've identified most of those as being fake. Wow. Most of the ones that we saw. So yeah, I mean, again, that's that's probably a new area for a lot for a lot of people. But nevertheless, read the book, and you'll see I present lots and lots of evidence for that being the case. Yeah, and there's a lot there's of a lot other of stuff. I mean, there are important chapters about the human mind and things like that. Where can people find your book? Is it where's the best place to buy it? Yeah, well, if you're in America, it's on Amazon.com. It's not actually on my main author page at the moment because it was only actually published at the weekend, last weekend, uh, and it takes days and days for it to propagate through onto your, through the, the whole Amazon website onto my author page. But if you catch it, hear my name, John Hamer, 
and key in falsification of science. It is there. It is actually on the Amazon site, just not linked yet to my web page. My and own you, web page. You, are you on any social media or anything if people have questions or anything? Um, I don't do Twitter or Facebook, no, but um, I do have a website, falsificationofhistory.co.uk, .co.uk. And, uh, you know, my web, my uh, email address is in there. If anybody wants to contact me, either to call me an idiot or to actually ask me questions or say, well done, John, I think you're great, then by all means, drop me an email. I don't have a problem with that. Okay, awesome. And again, it's John Hamer, H-A-M-E-R, the new book published this month titled The Falsification of Science, Our Distorted Reality. John Hamer, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, William. It's been very good. Thank you. Right, Enjoyed awesome. it. Take care. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.